Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We are going to launch into a fresh series this morning. We're going to start a series on the the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, before we get to the baptism in the Holy Spirit, we need to lay some groundwork on understanding the Spirit of God. And uh, the the Spirit of God, that third person of the Trinity, he's really, the the Spirit of God is the, uh, the, that member of the Trinity that is probably the least understood because it's the least written about overtly in Scripture. Uh, Interesting fact is that it was the Holy Spirit who inspired the writers of the Scripture and the Holy Spirit didn't inspire them to write a lot about Him. Uh, The Spirit came to glorify the Son. The Father sent the Son. The Son sent the Spirit. And so the Spirit... Uh, there's, there's not a lot of overt material on the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Uh, there is a lot of, you know, the, the theology is the study of God in general. Christology is the study of the Son of God, of Jesus. And pneumatology is the study of the Spirit. And of the New Testament writers, or of, scri- of the writers in Scripture, really Paul is the one who writes the most on the Holy Spirit. So he's the one that really gives us, he's the one that overtly just writes about the Spirit as a subject matter. Uh, Luke wrote on the Spirit in the sense of the work of the Spirit, especially in the book of Acts. Luke was a doctor who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so we have this whole record of the work of the Spirit, but it's a narrative, it's a story. And so in story form, it's not as direct it's, uh, and it's open for more interpretation. We can get a lot of theology from the book of Acts. Some people tell you that you shouldn't get your theology from narrative passages. You shouldn't build doctrine from narrative passage like the gospel and the book of Acts. But the fact is, Paul himself, in one of the books that they say you should get doctrine from, tells us all scripture is inspired and profitable for doctrine. So we can get doctrine from all scripture. But not all scripture is equally valuable in its treatment of different subjects. And so Paul is really the one that really writes a lot on the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting if you look at scripture, uh, you you begin to hear, especially theologians will use this kind of phrase. In Pauline theology or in Johannine thought, what they're saying is John's teaching as opposed to Paul's teaching. And I remember when I was a young believer, I'd hear, I'd read that kind of stuff. I went to Bible school. I'm educated, you know. And uh, so I went to Bible school and they would talk about that stuff. And I would think as if they were talking about these two guys in disagreement with each other. And that's not what's being said there. What it is, it's an acknowledgement that different biblical writers carried different revelation. They each had their own insight that was given to them by God. And no one person has all of truth. We have to bring that together and bring our theology side by side. One of the revelations that Paul carried was that of the Spirit of God. He was the one that we really get our pneumatology from, that our understanding of the Spirit of God. And you can't get very far into Paul's writing on the Holy Spirit before you realize there's a tension that must be maintained. What do I mean by that? Let me back up a little and say this, that if you don't, if you're not comfortable with tension, 
If you're not comfortable with two sides to one subject, you're going to be very uncomfortable with the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you don't maintain, if you don't acknowledge and maintain and learn to feel comfortable with that tension, you will get into error. That, that's across the board. There's a lot of subjects we could look at in the, in, that have attention to them. But this subject of the Spirit, and it's closely associated with the subject of the kingdom of God, there's a tension that exists within this subject matter. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to explain in just a moment. But we need to understand that the Spirit of God and the kingdom of God are very, very closely associated. Matter of fact, theologians will use this term. I'm going to throw out some theological terms because I think we need to understand these if we hear them elsewhere so we know what we're talking about. You'll hear theologians use this phrase, the eschatological tension of the already and the not yet. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, eschatology is simply the Greek word for study of end things. It's really your theology or your belief from the scriptures on how everything wraps up. Most people, when they think of eschatology, they're thinking of who is the Antichrist? What is the mark of the beast? You know, is, is it pre-trib or post-trib rapture? And all that is part of eschatology. But eschatology is a bigger, uh, it's wider than that. And matter of fact, when you get into the study of the kingdom of God and you get into studying the Holy Spirit, you have to add this element to it, that there is the eschatological tension of the already and the not yet. What does that mean? What it means is that there's a sense in which both the spirit and the kingdom have already arrived but are yet coming. We live in that interim time where we've entered into the inauguration of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is now, but it's not yet. It's already arrived in its initiation, but it's not arrived in its consummation. It's already here, but it's not here in its absolute fullness. So when theologians talk about eschatological tension, they're talking about eschatology is a future thing. They're saying that the theological tension of some prophecies are already fulfilled in part, but not in fullness. And that is very true of Paul's theology of the Spirit. And if we don't understand that, if we don't acknowledge that and begin to look at the Scriptures on the Holy Spirit through that lens, it simply won't make sense. The same is true of the kingdom of God. And this, the the lack of understanding of this tension that we must maintain, that it's already but not yet. We're already experiencing it, but we're not yet entered into the fullness. And we're in that interim period between the invasion and the consummation of the kingdom of God. And the Spirit of God is very closely associated to that. We have... The beginnings, the first fruits of the Spirit, but not the fullness that we will one day have. Okay, does that make sense? So that's what we talk about eschatological tension. And if you're not comfortable with that tension, what you do is you go to one extreme or the other. And that becomes unhealthy. What happens is when people are, don't acknowledge the tension in Scripture, the already and not yet, you'll hear people, like for instance on the kingdom of God, there are whole movements. I was a part of uh, a church of a w- very well-known TV preacher. Uh, he, he has a household name. And he used to preach that there's no kingdom until the king comes. And so we were always looking at the kingdom coming. It wasn't here yet. 
And he really took issue with another guy during that season of Christian history uh, back in the 80s, back in the old days, kids, back in the 80s, where there was another preacher that was always talking about the kingdom now theology. And man, he really took issue with that. And so he would preach messages on there is no king without the kingdom. And you know which one was right? Neither. They were both partially right, but because they camped out on one end of the tension to the negation of the other, they ended up in error. How, what, what do I mean by that? Well, if we don't acknowledge that the kingdom is already here, what we do is we pray for something God's already given us, for one thing, and God can't answer that kind of prayer. If he's already given, to you, given it to you, you're wasting your breath praying for something you already have. What you need to do is what Paul did, is pray for a revelation of what you already have. Not the, not the receiving of what you have, but the understanding of what you already have. But there's a bigger issue here. Those who adhere to this theology that the kingdom is, doesn't arrive until King Jesus puts his feet physically on the earth in his second return... Or in his, I guess it's his return, not his second return. It wouldn't be a return. It would be a second arrival, right? Okay. Anyway, his, his, in his return, if we believe that the kingdom doesn't come until that happens, then we end up tolerating things that we're called to overthrow. That's why people who carry a strong kingdom emphasis, you'll hear them preaching on the kingdom a lot. They also preach on healing, deliverance, even prosperity. Because they believe that the kingdom that is coming has already arrived. And it's the ever-increasing kingdom. Of the increase of his kingdom and his government, there shall be no end, Isaiah said. And so we're already in it, but we don't have all of it yet. And revival is simply the breaking in of the future. Matter of fact, it's really a good way to say it when we talk about the eschatological tension. Everybody say that. Eschatological tension of the already and the not yet. So now you need to look for an opportunity to use that at the office this week, you know. Really, when we talk about the eschatological tension, what we're saying is the future has already arrived. That's why in the book of Hebrews, the writer says we have tasted of the powers of the age to come. Isn't that an interesting phrase? We've tasted of the powers of the age to come. The fullness of the kingdom, when sin shall be no more, has already broke into the, the present. We don't have the fullness of it. And I would propose to you that what we call revival is an increase of the breaking in of the future into the present. We can pull on the future and pull it into the present in increasing measures. And that is what we are here for. But we have to acknowledge that it's already arrived in order to do so. So when we fail to understand that it arrives, we tolerate things that we're not called to tolerate. And so rather than having a theology of breakthrough, of healing, of deliverance, a theology of prosperity, we, have, we replace it with a theology of suffering. And rather than talking about breaking into the kingdom and having God's 
God's kingdom break in and, and break off things of our life so that we can move closer to what God intended, what we do is we create a theology of suffering that says that God is using all these things, all the lack of the kingdom surrounding us to build character in us. Now, the fact is there's truth to that, but it's not the whole truth. And if that is your whole truth, then you live in a defeated place, life happens to you, and you just get conformed to the image of Christ in the process. Now, the other extreme is this dominion, dominionism or a kingdom now theology. Now, a lot of people mistaken what, what is commonly being taught today as kingdom theology in our stream as dominionism or kingdom now theology. Those are two different things. There's one theology that says the fullness of the kingdom is now and only when we are ruling and reigning on the earth as Christian believers in political, this political spheres and so forth that then Jesus will return. We have to bring the kingdom in its fullness and then he comes and sits on the throne that we've already secured for him. That's kingdom now theology. And so this extreme ends up rejecting things that God has for us. Over here, we are, both extremes reject things God has for us. One rejects the blessings God has for us. This one rejects the hardship that God has for us. And make no mistake about it, there is hardship within the will of God. Let me give you, give me a troubling verse. Won't be a lot of amens on this one. Romans chapter 5. Suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character. You know the modern way of saying that? No pain, no gain. James 1 says, endure hardship, or, or uh, Hebrews 12 says, endure hardship that you may share in his holiness. James chapter 1 says, don't think it's strange, brothers, when you're going through trials of many kinds. Because it's going to work patience and maturity in your life. So we have suffering, hardship, trials, which must be patiently endured to produce character, holiness, and maturity. Is this God's will for us? Character, holiness, and maturity? Absolutely. What's the pathway to get there? Hardship, trials, and what was the other one? Uh, yeah, suffering. Yeah. See, I, I, I don't memorize those, you know. This stuff is the will of God, but it's not the whole picture. And you see how there's whole streams within the body of Christ that go to one extreme or the other. And so we make a theology. It's always God's will. Suffering is the will of God, and sickness is the will of God. It's, it's a tool to shape us into the character of God. But then the people on this side is it's never God's will for you to go through hardship. It's never God's will for you to struggle. And you're supposed to be victorious. And there's this false triumphalism that is taught. I, I was just telling someone the other day, I had a dear, some dear friends. Uh, a buddy of mine married a girl. Her father was the pastor of a Word of Faith church. And I want to tell you, I, I, am the, I believe much of what the Word of Faith movement taught. I believe, I believe in word of faith theology. Now, if you don't know what I mean by that, uh, I'm not going to take the time to explain it, but some of you do. I don't agree with some of the extremism any more than I don't agree with the extremism in our own church. 
But I do believe in word of faith theology. But this particular girl was raised in a home of a pastor who pastored an extreme church. And so this precious little couple went through a stillborn birth. And her mom and dad told her, if you'd have just had more faith, it would have never happened. Which deeply wounded her. And lo and behold, a few months later, mom got their, her mother got pregnant went through the same thing. And they had to adjust their theology to work through this thing. That, there are, I'm not saying it was God orchestrated the stillborn birth. But when we begin to get into this extreme, the entire kingdom is now, and there's, it's not coming, it's already here, and so there should be no hardship, there should be... That is not solid biblical theology. Now, here's the problem. When we don't live within the tension, we don't have this lens to understand this tension, we end up going to one extreme or the other, descending into error, and all the while, we are quoting Scripture to justify our imbalance. And there's plenty of Scripture to quote on both sides. Because neither are the whole truth. Both are the truth, but neither are the whole truth. So, we've got to maintain this tension that it's the already and not yet. And so, theologians, when they talk about the Holy Spirit, they'll refer to him as the eschatological spirit. What are they talking about? What they're saying is, is the spirit is the fulfillment of the promise. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit of promise. He is the fulfillment of many of the ancient promises. And Paul, being the primary source of our New Testament pneumatology, our New Testament theology on the Holy Spirit, says this. He he says in Galatians chapter 3, I want to say it's verse 14, he talks about the Spirit. Let me read it to you. Galatians 3 verse 14. That upon the Gentiles might come the blessings of Abraham in Christ Jesus. And listen to what he tells, says that blessing is. And we're talking about an old covenant blessing, Gen, Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abram and co- enters into covenant with him and says, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. It's the blessing of Abram. And then there's a mark that God places upon him, the mark of that covenant, and it's circumcision. And so listen to what he says. That upon the Gentiles, so now it's not just the Jews, God's goal was not just to bless Abram and his family, the man who became a a family, who became a tribe, who became a nation. Now, it's not just for that nation, but to be all the nations of the earth. He's going to encompass the Gentiles. And listen what that blessing is, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on your and my life is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And Paul thought of it like that. When Paul looked at the outpouring of the Spirit, he referred to the Spirit, and one of the phrases that he used in regards to the Holy Spirit is that he is the Spirit of promise. He is the fulfillment of all these promises in the Old Testament. And if we don't understand that, we won't understand that we live in the the tension of the already and not yet of the Spirit, that we have already entered into with their fulfilled prophecy. The Spirit of God coming on you is the mark of fulfilled prophecy. And that should encourage you, because that is a sign that you have been accepted by the Father. 
Matter of fact, you remember when Peter went out, he started preaching to the Gentiles and the Spirit of God fell on the Gentiles and the apostles heard about it back in Jerusalem. And he came back, he said, hey guys, listen, I can't help it. Because they didn't think Gentiles could be saved. He said, I'm just telling you, I was preaching and God came on and whom I argue with God. The sign that God had accepted the Gentiles was his spirit coming upon them. And they all said, well, who are we to argue with God? God's expanded this thing to the Gentiles. Now, a strong case, this is a little rabbit trail, but I, I like rabbit trails. The, a strong case can be made, and this is one of the verses that allude to that, that the New Testament expression of the Old Testament mark of circumcision is tongues. Let me say it again. In the Old Covenant, God marked his man, Abraham, with this, this mark called circumcision, and he was going to bless that entire family. In the New Testament, the outpouring of the Spirit is the sign upon us, and one of the manifestations of that is the gift of tongues. And if you look in the Old Covenant, the mark marked the organ of reproduction in the male. And because under the Old Covenant, the reproduction or the blessing of God was upon the physical, biological family, and God marked the organ of reproduction. And let's face it, that was a strange thing. That was the religious mark. And let's face it, this New Testament religious mark that we are his is also a strange one, speaking in tongues. But now reproduction and the expansion of the kingdom, expansion of the family of God, the organ of reproduction by which people are brought into the family is through the lips, through the preaching of the word where people hear the word of truth and are born again. The seed of God comes and penetrates their heart and brings them into the family. And God marked them both with these strange signs. And so it's like, well, you know, this tongues. You invite someone to church thing. oh, no, someone's going to speak in tongues, you know. They're, oh, no, it's going to be a word in tongues. What are we going to do, you know? Well, hey, that's no more. Just think about Abraham trying to convince people to join his religion, you know. Yeah, I'd rather have tongues, thank you. So anyways, enough said. So we have this, we need to live in this tension of the already and the not yet. And that is an important element for you and I to understand. Now, Paul had three metaphors he used of the Holy Spirit. He, had, he talked about uh, it was a seal. We were sealed with him. And he talked about a down payment. And uh, what was the other one? Seal, a down payment. Someone remembers, just yell it out. A seal, a down payment. I've got it written down here. Yeah, the first fruits. First fruits, seal, and down payment. In Ephesians chapter 1, we just finished up our 17-year-long class on the book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights. I already miss it. We have to start again. We, uh, we covered this in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about how the Spirit is a down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. What's he talking about? It's that tension of the already and the not yet. That's what he's alluding to. A down payment says, I'm going to, I'm going to enter in to a contractual agreement. The, the spirit upon us is a sign of the contractual agreement. That we are accepted. Just like Peter looked at the Gentiles and said, hey, God's accepted them. The spirit fell on them. 
So the reception of the, the receiving of the Spirit, the Spirit coming upon us, is a sign of the contractual agreement. But it's also a promise of the fullness to come. Because a down payment takes a portion of the overall price, a substantial portion, and pays it to the person so that they know, I have a guarantee they're going to come through because nobody's going to waste their down payment. That's the idea. And so the Spirit of God, the initial reception of the Spirit, is a down payment guaranteeing our future breaking in of the fullness of God. So when the Spirit comes upon you, it's like you're cashing in on the future fullness. And we need to understand that. And in Paul's thinking, the gifts of the Spirit are a sign of the fullness of the kingdom coming. Matter of fact, you can see this in the Old Testament where the priest, when the priest would wear his garment, remember he'd go into the Holy of Holies and, and uh, once a year, and they, uh, we don't see this in Scripture, but historians tell us that they would tie a rope to his ankle lest he fall over dead because no one could go him and get him. And on, if you read in the Old Testament, the garments were, were uh, developed in a very specific way according to the pattern God gave them. And on the hem of the garment were pomegranates and bells, pomegranates and bells, all around the hem. So when the, the priest would walk, you'd hear ding, 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 ding. And they'd listen for that ding, 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 ding. Because if there was no ding, 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 it's uh-oh. If there's ding, 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 thud, they'd pull on it. If there's no pull back, or the, uh-oh, pull them out because the, the, the sacrifice had been rejected. So that, that those uh, pomegranates and bells on the garment signified the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit all around his garment. And so the picture is this. Jesus, as our high priest, goes into the Holy of Holies with his own blood and presents it to the Father. And then when he comes back out, we hear ding, 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 ding. And so he's, he's coming out of the holy place towards us. So in a sense, every time, like this morning when Christy gave that message in tongues and interpretation. And usually I'll get up and explain for those who don't understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 14. Speak of tongues and interpretation in our worship where God will speak to us in those gifts. It's one of nine specific gifts, and they work together. There's tongues and interpretation. Now, tongues can be used alone for us to just pray and worship, but when it's given in a public setting like that, if someone's going to pray out in tongues, there needs to be an interpretation, which is what we experienced this morning. That, that sign this morning of Christy giving that message in tongues was like the bells on Jesus' robe, and it says that I've made the sacrifice and I'm coming back. I'm coming back for you. And every time we have the manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit, it's a sign he's returning. He's on his way back. It's the breaking, and we have the, we have the initial break-in, but the fullness is coming. And we need to see it as that because that's how Paul saw it, and it's an encouragement to us. We look at it and say, this is a down payment. What I've experienced is nothing compared to what I'm going to experience. It's precious. It's wonderful. But there's more coming. And the reason I know there's more, because what he began in the down payment, he will complete in the consummation. And so it's that down payment. He also said the Spirit of God is a seal. It validates authenticity, ownership, and protection. 
But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it carries the promise of the future. It refers to the Spirit, and Paul says, the Spirit with whom you were sealed unto the day of redemption. So there's a, a tying in of this seal to the future break-in. And we need to understand it in that way. And then we have in Romans 8, 23, the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits speaks of an initial harvest, yet insinuates more coming. And so our first fruits, that initial infilling when the Spirit comes upon us, is a glorious thing. Now, we need to understand, when we talk about this initial infilling, and we, we use all this terminology in the New Testament, we need to be very clear and make a distinction between salvation, whereby we are partakers of the divine nature through the Holy Spirit. When you are saved, the Holy Spirit sets up residence in you. So the Spirit is in you. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is different. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is distinct from and subsequent to salvation. They're two separate things. Now, they may happen very quickly together, but they're distinct. And you cannot be baptized in the Spirit until you're born again. Matter of fact, I remember Leonard Ravenhill, one of his books, he put it this way. He said, the Spirit only comes on Jesus. And until he's in you, he won't come on you. <laughs> he said of Jesus' baptism, when Jesus came up out of the water, the Spirit lit upon him. And he said he's never, he doesn't come on anybody else. And there's a very, there, it's a very real sense in which that is true. He comes on us to dwell when the Spirit of God, I mean, when, when Jesus resides in us by faith. But that is by the Spirit. We're born again by the Spirit. And so when we're saved, matter of fact, Romans 8 says, if, you, you, uh, if you're not a partaker of the Spirit of Christ, you're none of His, I think is the way Paul says it. In other words, in salvation, you have to receive the Spirit. And so there are many theologically that say, well, then the, the receiving of the Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and salvation are one event. And when you got saved, you got it all. Well, there's several problems with that. One of the problems is that there are several expressions in the New Testament where we see that simply did not happen. Acts 19, Paul comes to, to the Ephesian believers and he said, did you receive the Spirit since you believed? Why would he even ask that if it was a possibility, impossibility not to? Acts chapter 8, there, there, I believe it was the Samaritan, uh, they call it the Samaritan Pentecost, where people received the Lord by faith, were water baptized, and then the apostles came and laid hands on them, and then they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They received the Spirit. And see, it's those people that want to reject that, they say, well, no, don't get your doctrine from narrative passages. And they are the same people that reject the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit. They are, they're what's called cessationists. They say that the Spirit, the, the gifts of the Spirit, the moving of the Spirit has ceased after the death of the original apostles. Whereas people who don't believe that are called continuists. We believe it continues till today. And it's ironic that cessationists will say, well, we're people, you, you guys get into all that emotionalism, we're people of the word. We want to get our doctrine from the word, not from our experience. When in actuality, they're getting their theology from their lack of experience 
of what the word says. And, be, and in order to do that, they have to say, well, don't get your doctrine from narrative passages. The irony is that the very people who say, we just want to get our doctrine from the word, ignore that passage in the word that says, all scripture is inspired and profitable for doctrine. All scripture, including the narrative passages. So we can't ignore these narrative passages that tell us the baptism of the Holy Spirit is separate from and subsequent to salvation. So when we get saved, we surrender to the Lord and the born-again experience is our human spirit is made alive, it's resurrected. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, they who... uh, they who have, the, 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 it talks about salvation in salvation. We become one with him in spirit. Literally, the spirit of God comes wed to our whole human spirit and we are born again. And it's in that sense that Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature. Your spirit, man, is born again. And so we receive the spirit. The spirit is in us. But there's a difference between the spirit being in you and you being in the spirit. And both of those tenses are used in the New Testament. Matter of fact, those, those tenses or those pictures are also used of Jesus. You, you can be Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul said in Colossians. But then one of his favorite phrases is you being in Christ. Christ in you and you being in Christ are not talking about the same thing. There is a different thing that Paul is communicating there. And the same is true with the spirit being in you and you being in the spirit. You, the spirit being in you is salvation, where we are partakers of the spirit. Scripture talks about us, uh, the wells of salvation. We take a drink of him. He resides within us. That is salvation. But the baptism in the Holy Spirit is we are in the Spirit. When we get saved, the Spirit comes in us. We drink of him. When we are baptized in the Spirit, we are submerged in him. He becomes our environment. It's the difference between taking a drink and taking a bath. There's a difference in the volume of water. And that is a fair expression to express what New Testament theology teaches. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we are in the Spirit, and we're to learn to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, the environment of the Spirit. It's not to be, we just receive Him in measure, and He resides within us. We are to reside in Him. He becomes the atmosphere we swim in. That's the Spirit filled life or what we call the fullness of the spirit and you can be saved go to heaven and never experience that but why would you want to the baptism in the holy spirit is that that separate experience where we are submerged in him and endued with power from on high the disciples you see this in their life in john 20 uh, John 20, Jesus walks through the wall. He's already resurrected. They're mourning that he's not, no longer with them. And all of a sudden he walks through the wall and they're freaking out. And it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Then we see in Acts chapter 2, they're waiting on the Spirit so they can be baptized. They can be endued with power from on high. And it was on the feast 
of Pentecost. That's why those who buy into that theology that, that still believe that are continuous are called Pentecostals, or the more modern term is charismatics. And then we also have this, the, the more recent third waivers, you know. But we have, it, we're Pentecostal. We believe in that experience in Scripture. Now, why am I going through all this, getting so technical? Because it's not good enough to have an experience that you can't explain. You don't only need an experience of the Spirit. You need to be like Paul and have a theology of the Spirit. But there's an equal danger that we have a theology of the Spirit that we don't experience. And there are a lot of individuals and even churches that are Pentecostal in doctrine, but they're far from it in practice and in experience. That is not a criticism. I say that with a broken heart. We don't need churches that are experiencing things that they can't explain because then you're in danger of experiencing things you shouldn't experience. But we also don't want to have churches that just talk about things but never enter into the experience. I would propose to you that the Holy Spirit is the experiential agent of the Godhead in this hour of God's economy. Jesus walked with his disciples in physical form. When they were in a storm, they'd wake him up in the boat. Jesus, get up, and he'd calm the storm. That was a pretty good gig, you know. They had, they had God with them in the flesh. But Jesus himself said, hey, guys, I got something for you. I'm leaving. What? He said, it's better that I leave because I'm going to send another like unto myself, a comforter or a helper. The Greek word was Paraclete, it comes from two words, para, kaleo. Para, it means alongside, and kaleo, to call to help. So one called alongside to help. That word is translated helper, comforter, uh, advocate. There's a number of words, and all of them are valid. The, I, I like helper because it kind of provides an umbrella word for all those words. What do you need? That's what he's come to help you with. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to send another like unto myself. I was this to you guys this last three years. But you're going to have something better than God in your boat. You're going to have God in your heart. You're going to become the boat that carries him. You're going to have him. And he's not going to take a nap. You don't have to wake him from slumber to calm your storm. He's going to live within you. You're going to be a bearer of his presence. And so he told us, I have something better for you, the Holy Spirit. And so we need to have an understanding of the Spirit, and we need to have an experience of the Spirit. Just as the disciples were able to experience Jesus, and what alarmed them was not that they, they, didn't ha- they were going to lose the doctrine of Jesus, They could still believe in him in his absence. It wasn't the doctrine of Jesus they were worried about losing. It was the experience, the companionship of Jesus. And that was the pain that he was trying to assuage in their hearts, saying, hey, I'm sending another. Not just a doctrinal thing, but an experiential thing. The Holy Spirit is that experiential agent that walks with us and speaks to us and empowers us. And we need that experience in our life. But we also need to firmly root it in the scriptures. And so when we talk about the spirit of God, 
and being endued with power from on high is the way the King James Version says it. When we talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit, this is an experience that is separate from salvation. And it's the power of God coming upon you. Now, uh, Pentecostals, I was raised in Pentecostalism. We like to stress the external power. Because Jesus said, and the, uh, be, you know, tarry until you're endued with power from on high. That's it, Acts chapter 1 where he's saying, okay, guys, the, you know, it was 50 days after Calvary was the Feast of Pentecost. They went into prayer for 10 days. Jesus rose again, walked the earth for 40 days, then was ascended. For the next 10 days, they cried out in prayer and fasting. And then on the day of Pentecost, there was like a mighty, mush, mighty mushing wind. Yeah, I'm getting hungry. Mashed potatoes. We uh, Mike, a mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire came in and the Spirit came upon them. And they were turned into different people. They went out in great power and signs and wonders began to happen. It was a package deal. With the Spirit came the gifts of the Spirit, those signs, wonders, and miracles. And so this is distinct from this. And we, we like to express or like to emphasize as Pentecostals this external power, the power to be a witness, power for ministry, power to do signs and wonders, power for healing and prophesying and words of knowledge. And, all. and that's valid. That's, that's scriptural. But there's also an internal power that the New Testament talked about, that Paul talked about, that often we overlook, that some of the other denominations will really emphasize, like the holiness movement that predated the Pentecostal, the modern-day Pentecostal movement at the turn of the last century. You know, the, the holiness movement under John Wesley and, and uh, the, you know, these, these different movements that came out of, out of that. They emphasize the holiness, the internal power to live above sin. And that, too, is a manifestation of the fullness of the Spirit. Paul said in Romans 8, it's by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. So when the power of God comes upon you, there's an internal power to live the life, to live holy, to live above temptation, to break the back of temptation. And there's an external power to release the kingdom upon others. And we need both. And both are biblical theology, and we need to believe for both. That's why the holiness movement, they would talk about praying through. And they would, it was part of their theology. They would talk about, I was saved, and I've been sanctified. What did they mean by that? They looked at sanctification or holiness coming upon them as an event, a point in time that they could point back to. I got saved that day, but I struggled with sin until that day, and I got sanctified. The power of the Spirit came upon me. Now, when the, the, in the outpouring of the Spirit at the turn of the last century, 1904, around in that time, the Pentecostal movement really took fire and, and spread across the earth. Now, the fact is, all down through hi- church history, there have been pockets of spiritual manifestations. But I'm talking about as a global movement, the Pentecostal revival that erupted in 1904, approximately, when that began to happen... Uh, there was a fork in the road that because it, it came out of the holiness movement that were, that were crying out for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But they looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit as power over sin. And as the revival fires of the Wesley brothers began to die down, and what was once the revival movement, the Methodist church, became just another evangelical church. And since that time, many of them have even stepped out of that. 
There were those within it that were crying out, there's got to be more. And God answered with the Holy Ghost and fire. And so we, what we see was the modern Pentecostal movement. When that happened, there was a fork in the road doctrinally where people took, there was, there was two different theologies that came out of that. The first theology was that they looked at three distinct works of grace. There are the church of God in Christ, uh, the church of God of prophecy, church of God of holiness, the church of God, uh, there are a lot of churches of God, church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, Perry Stone, that's him, okay? Uh, Jensen Franklin came out of that movement. Uh, uh, The Lambs uh, on uh, Daystar, they were Church of God, okay? All those guys. They, They were raised under theology that said there's three distinct works of grace. You're saved, you're sanctified, and you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, if you go into a Church of God in Christ for a testimony, they'll get up and they'll say, They'll say, I'm, I'm Dave, and I'm saved, sanctified, and baptized in the Holy Ghost. And then they'll tell their testimony. That is as much a, do- it's cultural, it's part of their church culture, but it's also a doctrinal statement. They look at that as three separate things. Then you had another group of Pentecostal churches, the Foursquare, the Assemblies of God, the Open Bible, uh, and, and some of these movements that believed in two works of grace. I'm saved and I'm baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then they looked at sanctification as progressive. You grow in grace. It's not an event where the Holy Spirit comes upon you and breaks sin off of you. But you grow slowly in maturity. And those things fall off. Which one is true? Uh Uh-huh. There's truth to both of them. Matter of fact, I think we need a little more emphasis in our stream about praying through. Because when we do that, I'm telling you, as a young believer, I came out of some brokenness and some real twisted stuff. I was a homeless alcoholic and had, and that was just the external stuff. I mean, I was messed up. And I, I, would, I would get with God, and there were a number of times where I would lay on the floor. I'd close myself in a room, and I'd say, God, I'm not getting off this floor until I have a breakthrough. And there were times where I rolled around that floor. People would have thought I was nuts. I was rolling, pulling up carpet, crying, squalling, bawling, pounding the floor. But I said, God, I am not leaving until you touch me. And I'm telling you, when you do that, he will. Yes. And there were times I had such holy times with God. There's some that to this day I've never told anybody about because it's just, it was, you know, that, word, that phrase that says secrets bind hearts together. It's he and I's secret from the secret place. But he changed my life and I was sanctified in that moment and something shifted and I didn't walk under the bondage that I did when I walked in that room, when I walked out. It was an event. It wasn't a process. But there's other things I'm still in the process. It's the tension of the already and the not yet. Just ask my family. So we live in this reality. And so I know we kind of got into some theological terms, but I want to lay a groundwork. I want us to understand this theology of the Spirit, that there is salvation wherein the Spirit of God comes into us, but there is the baptism in the Holy Spirit where we come into him. Where we are submerged. Jesus put it this way. He, in Luke chapter 3. Well it wasn't Jesus that said it. It was John. When John was baptizing Jesus. Jesus presents himself to his cousin. John the Southern Baptist. And he says John I want you to baptize me. He wasn't really a Southern Baptist. He says I want you to baptize me. And John said no. He said I'm not even worthy to tie, untie your sandals. He said you need to baptize me. And Jesus said I must Fulfill all of righteousness. 
That's a good plug for water baptism. If you haven't been baptized in water and you're a believer, you need to sign up this week and we'll get you dunked next week. And then John said, he said of Jesus, this one, the one, who, I, what I do with water, and it was a prophetic picture. John would take people and dunk them, submerge them underwater. It wasn't just a little sprinkling on their head. He would dip them in the, the, the river Jordan, which was moving water, and they would come up. They were saturated, dripping, ruined their hairdo, messed their shirt up. They were soaked, dripping. He said, what I do with water, the one coming after me, the one whose sandals I am unworthy to untie, he will do this with the Holy Ghost and fire. And that vivid picture of what the baptism in the Holy Spirit needs to register with us. And if that has never happened to you, and if it has, you know it. Where the Spirit of God has come upon you, and you come up dripping, saturated. He became your environment. You were submerged in it. You're no longer his habitation. He's yours. He comes and he drenches you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that fire is that internal purification the holiness preachers used to talk about. Because John goes on to say, the winnowing fork is in his hand and he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So we need not just a theology, we need an experience. And we need not just an experience, we need a theology. We want to be people of the Word and the Spirit. Amen? Father... Just raise your hands. Father, I thank you, God, for what your word says about the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I thank you that as we lay the groundwork biblically, you're going to pour it out experientially. I want you to get ready over the next few weeks to begin to receive of the Spirit. What we sow as the seed of the word, we will reap in our experience. And so, Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we are hungry for everything that is of you, we want nothing that is not of you and everything that is. And so, Lord, I'm asking for revelation that you would teach us. And, Father, I pray that you would grace this company of people with a ravenous hunger for more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.